Africa rise and shine Africa zola Africa amka na unai Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabiso Duhoko and Figilele Mwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, African Union explains why its ambassador to the US was fired and South Africa holds a symposium on the future of Zimbabwe. In economics news, South African Airways to resume some regional flights despite ongoing strike and in sports news, TP Mazembe boss named as vice president of World Football Club Association. But first up the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musa. Mali's army says 24 soldiers have been killed in an attack by militants in the east of the country. Another 29 were also injured during a joint operation between troops from Mali and Niger in the Gao border region. Mali's army says 17 terrorists were killed and 100 suspects were being held in Talo in Niger. It comes weeks after 54 troops were killed in another attack, one of the deadliest in the past decade. Details of Monday's attack are unclear and authorities have not identified what group the assailants belong to. South Africa's International Relations Minister Naledi Pando says she believes businesswoman Bridget Mutsepe Khadebe did not commit any crime in Botswana. Khadebe, a close friend with former Botswana President Ian Khama, stands accused of money laundering and attempting to overthrow the government. Authorities in Botswana reportedly want both former President Ian Khama and Bridget Mutsepe Khadebe to account for alleged illicit financial flows out of Botswana. Pando says she's hopeful these allegations won't sour relations with the northern neighbor. Ms. Mutsipe Khadebe has said she's not been involved in any uh, negative uh, activity from what I saw on the SABC, I believe. Uh, she was interviewed. I was just landing, but I happened to catch that interview. Uh, so my understanding is she has uh, been cleared apparently by banks uh, with respect to accusations of money laundering and so on. I hope that uh, this will come to an end because Botswana is a very strong partner. Botswana's High Commissioner to South Africa, Limek Ntekele, says the issue has no bearing on relations between South Africa and Botswana. We have a very cordial relationship with South Africa. Uh, for your own information, we've got about 37 agreements and memorandum of agreements that we have signed, ranging from health, trade, tourism, as well as in science and technology and collaborating in education. Therefore, our relations predate South, uh, our independence and therefore we have always had traditional ties even before we signed these agreements. 
The leader of a group of foreign nationals who are being accommodated inside the Central Methodist Church in Cape Town in South Africa, in South Africa, J.P. Balus, says they are ready to leave the church and the country. Hundreds of foreigners are living in the church after being removed from the UN Refugee Office a few weeks ago. Balus says they met with the South African Human Rights Commission as part of ongoing negotiations to find a solution to the problem. I believe we are in Cape Town. I don't know which, which one is the nearest border, but we already checked. We saw kind of Botswana is somewhere and we saw Namibia is somewhere. Where we'll have to calculate how many kilometers, where will be the nearest border is where we are going to go. We're just facilitating the talk so that we cannot be called people who are in denial, people who don't want to talk. And finally, Hong Kong's chief executive, Carrie Lam, has urged protesters occupying a major university to cooperate and resolve the situation peacefully. In the past week, the Polytechnic University has become a battleground for long-running anti-government protests. Civil protesters have now escaped from the campus, which was surrounded by police, by abseiling from a bridge and fleeing on the back of motorbikes. Around 100 others who tried to leave the vicinity were met with tear gas and rubber bullets. Some were arrested. Lamb says she does not want further violence. We will use whatever means to continue to persuade and arrange for these um, remaining uh, protesters to leave the campus as soon as possible so that this whole operation could be able to end in a peaceful manner. And that's the news headlines at 7.30 Central African Time. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka. In Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa. The African Union Commission has firmly rejected as blatantly untrue and unsubstantiated aspersions in the media that the tenure of its former ambassador to the United States was ended due to pronouncements or opinions she might have shared during her tenure. Ambassador Dr. Arikana Chihombori Kwa was sent a letter in October from AU Commission Chair Musa Faki that brought her tour of duty at the top AU official in Washington to an end. The AU communique says it regrets the condition, the continued misleading campaign on different media outlets regarding Ambassador Kwa. Kua's departure, arguing that her release was in line with the terms and conditions governing her contract of employment after serving three years as a permanent representative to Washington. As Show and Bryce Peace reports, the communique adds further allegations against Ambassador Kua. The statement lays out the findings of a supervisory audit of Ambassador Chiombori Kwao's office activities and lists various instances where she is alleged to have initiated projects and activities implemented with AU funds that have no formal AU commission approval or legal link 
to the African Union. The AU Commission says it has written confirmation from Chiombori Kwao that those activities were her private engagements with no relationship to the AU, which includes, according to the statement, raising and receiving funds in the name of the African Union and using the AU logo. The audit also found Ambassador Chiombori Kwao in violation of AU rules and regulations over unilateral diplomatic appointments which have since been revoked. The Commission says that since its separation from the Ambassador on October 31st, it has no further formal dealings with her, but reserves the right to take any legal action against any use or misuse of its name, logo and resources. The statement concludes that Ambassador Chiambori Kwao herself confirmed she had never been sanctioned by the Commission over any public pronouncements made during her tenure, which included pointed remarks about colonialism in Africa. Sherwin Breisby's SABC News, New York. Zimbabwe's former Deputy Prime Minister Atha Mutambara says that the country needs better election management, the end to polarizing politics and better economic policies to recover from the current meltdown. Mutambara made the comments at a symposium hosted by South Africa's International Relations Department in Pretoria. Minister Naledi Pandu delivered the key address, saying that it's important for the SADC region to assist Zimbabwe facilitate economic recovery. Nomabolani reports. The symposium was held under the theme Best Path Towards a Prosperous Zimbabwe. The host, International Relations Minister Naledi Pando, pointed out that Africa is brilliant with policies and frameworks, but continuously fails with implementation. She says beyond actioning for change, Zimbabwe will even need to build human resources. The situation has been equally negative for those with a livelihood as well as those without one. Zimbabwe has experienced significant loss of skills in the past decade and this has harmed the possibility of efficient management of key economic sectors and institutions. There was a consensus that the global north should lift the sanctions still imposed on Zimbabwe. The country is struggling with high inflation levels, low reserves of fuel and shortage of food in stores. The country's former Deputy Prime Minister Arthur Mutsambara says it's not enough to say sanctions must be lifted. Zimbabwe must fundamentally change their political and social systems. The fundamental problem in Zimbabwe is the issue around the management of our elections. Help us help ourselves so that when we go to the elections with transparent, credible, fair elections where winners are duly congratulated by the losers. The panelists, researcher Shingi Mutanga and political analyst Soma Dottafigeni, agree that the lifting of economic sanctions must be supported by a new wave of frameworks. There's no harmony between the civil society, the government and the business community. So there isn't a common voice that comes which drives the national interests. We ought to have a Davos of Africa, hosted maybe by UNISA every two years where political leaders, scholars, business people, people from the diaspora meet to say what is the developmental agenda if Africa is to mainstream itself in the 21st century. The Zimbabwean ambassador to South Africa, David David Hamazirimpi, 
believes the tide is turning. The people of Zimbabwe are persevering. This is our country. We are going through an episode. We are going through a period in our history, but we are certainly going to succeed. The SADC region understands that the redevelopment of Zimbabwe benefits the region. Minister Pando adds that she will ensure that the bloc continues to have such dialogues to facilitate the transition to prosperity. I'm Noma Bolani in Pretoria. Foreign nationals being housed inside the Central Methodist Church in Cape Town say they are ready to leave the church. Earlier, the leadership met with the Human Rights Commission in the Western Cape Province to discuss the way forward. The refugees from various countries like Congo, Nigeria, Somalia and and Burundi were evicted from a building housing the UN High Commission on Refugees a few weeks ago. Chris Mambuya reports. The leader of the refugees, JP Balus, says they are ready to leave the church and South Africa. He says they met with the South African Human Rights Commission as part of ongoing negotiations to find a solution to the problem. He says if no solution is found on Wednesday, they will leave the country. I believe we are in Cape Town. I don't know which, which one is the nearest border, but we already checked. We saw kind of Botswana is somewhere, and we saw Namibia is somewhere. Where we'll have to calculate how many kilometers, where will be the nearest border is where we are going to go. We're just facilitating the talk so that we cannot be called people who are in denial, people who don't want to talk. The South African Human Rights Commission in the Western Cape has confirmed the meeting with the refugee leaders. Commissioner Chris Nissen says the leadership has requested them to speak to the UNHCR on their behalf. We're only going with that message on Wednesday to the United Nations High Commission on Refugees to say, here are people, they have applied to you, they've engaged you before. What are you saying about those things? Because the High Commission says they do not do group resettlement. They do an assessment on individuals. Meanwhile, the Global Peace Organization in Cape Town, which is also monitoring the situation, says the refugees' situation needs urgent attention. Claudine Ganga says they've conducted a survey early this month on over 1,125 people. We also asked them whether they would like to be reinstated in another country. So 100% of the people here agree to be reinstated in any country as long as they are safe. The problem here, it's all about safety. It's a national emergency to the whole of South Africa because it's happening here and in Pretoria. Refugees have already indicated their willingness to leave the country due to safety concerns. I'm Chris Maboya in Cape Town. Former British Labour MP Lord Peter Hayne has called on South Africa's President Sil Ramaphosa and his government to act swiftly in making sure that all those that are identified at the State Capital Commission in Johannesburg are brought to book. Haynes says he understands that South Africa has limited resources and the public purse is under enormous pressure, but action must be taken. The South African born politician has told the commission that it would be of global significance if the South African government were seen to be acting against corruption. Abongile Dumako reports. South African-raised politician Lord Peter Hayne has told the Commission of Inquiry into State Capture in Johannesburg that international companies assisted individuals to loot billions of friends from South Africa. Hayne, a former anti-apartheid activist, has been at the helm of having international companies alleged to be involved in state capture investigated by governments, including Britain. Hayne is testifying at the inquiry on how he believes alleged corrupt individuals moved money from the country. 
He also says action must be taken swiftly. And particularly its president, whom I admire and I think is widely respected across the world, is President Ramaphosa. I just think they need to make decisions more quickly and act more quickly. And um, I hope that that might be something that your commission could investigate. I, I just reinforce the need for the levy on global corporates, given the lack of resourcing uh, resources that there are for the public purse in South Africa. And Deputy Chief Justice Raymond Zondo has assured Lord Hain that action will be taken immediately after his recommendations are communicated to the President. Uh, within 14 days after the report has been made available to the President, uh, the President, I think, should uh, uh, send to Parliament uh, information as to what he would do uh, with regard to the recommendations. Uh, which seems to give an indication that the desire was that uh, there should not be a long delay after the report of the commission has been submitted to the president. Lord Hain has also recommended that what he calls senior managers regime be introduced. That would see senior managers taking full responsibility of wrongdoing at companies across South Africa. He told the commission that this would help minimize fraud and money laundering in both the public and private sectors. So it's not just the corporate, but it's the individual managers. And punishment should include the removal of permission to work for any regulated entity in this field, such as a bank, for example, fines and perhaps even prison for the most serious offences. I think that would encourage management to take a much more active role in ensuring that the institution adopts the, the necessary stringent anti-money laundering procedures and, um, and policies, rather than simply seeing that this is a corporate responsibility. Hain says that it's not only government officials who can be blamed for state capture, but also all those who are its professional enablers. He adds that he also finds it strange that those in authority in South Africa didn't see anything that is of a warning sign of state capture. Yet it was all over the media. The commission continues on Tuesday. I'm Abongile Tumago in Johannesburg. A property owned by the controversial Gupta family has been sold for 2.6 million rand at an auction in Johannesburg. This is a house that was occupied by South Africa's ruling ANC Secretary General Ace Mahashule's son, Tsepiso Mahashule, who had to be evicted before the property was sold. The Gupta family left South Africa following accusations that they were involved in state capture. The property in the affluent suburb of Saxonwold in Johannesburg was valued at 3 million rand. As Pearl Makubani reports, this is how the auction started. What have we got for an opening bet to start the ball rolling? Ladies and gentlemen, the ball is up to you. What a million rand. Thank you, sir. 1.1, I got a 1,200,000 rand, a 1,300,000. At 1,400,000. Auctioneer Clive Lazarus opening the bid at 1 million rand for the three-bedroom family home. The house in the leafy suburb of Saxon World comprises of an entrance foyer, a lounge, a TV room, a dining room, a kitchen, three bedrooms, and two bathrooms, as well as a swimming pool.
the twenty million six hundred thousand rand. Or in our case, about twenty million six hundred thousand rand is there. Thirty million six hundred is good for the church. Or in any case, about sir. Are we all done? Good for the second. Two million six hundred. And the bid closed at 2.6 million rand. Property in this area is said to be sold for nothing less than 3 million rand. It was sold to two young businessmen who say they are from Pumalanga but have chosen to remain anonymous. 15% has to be paid immediately at the fall of the hammer and they have 30 days to produce a guarantee of the 85% balance of the purchase price subject to confirmation from the business rescue practitioner, director and head auctioneer at Park Village Auctions, Clive Lazarus, says this will be the first of several Saxon World-based Gupta-owned properties to be auctioned. This is the first of the residential property in Saxon World. Um, the business rescue practitioners have applied to court to obtain permission for the remaining properties in Saxon World to be auctioned. Um, there are probably another four auctions in the Saxonwald area. There's a property in Umschlanga, uh, there's a property in, in Cape Town, uh, there's a commercial property still in Midrand, and we have disposed already of the TNA building which was in Midrand, which was approximately a year ago. The auction relates to Confident Concept PTY Limited, one of the several Gupta companies placed under business rescue. Kurt Robert Knoop is a business rescue practitioner of Confident Concept. The business rescue plan um, was adopted some months ago and in terms of the plan, the assets of the company are to be sold and to pay its creditors. We will obviously follow up that, uh, that the purchaser acquires the necessary finance and a conveyancer will be appointed to, to attend to the transfer and upon, upon transfer, uh, the funds will then be paid to the creditors that are owed funds. Confident uh, is the owner of, of, of land upon which one of the mines is, is, is operational. Or there are approximately about another six or so properties in this company. The infamous Gupta compound, which consists of three stands, and the Gupta-owned mines are also to be sold. Pilmakubane, Johannesburg. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Kulitranjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka. In Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa. Some DRC citizens have criticized President Felix Tshisekedi for his frequent trips out of the country. President Tshisekedi has visited 22 countries since he came to power in January. Those in support of the president's trips abroad say it's part of his diplomatic strategy, while some say it's a waste of the country's resources. Januel Bamweza reports from Kinshasa. It's about 10 months now since Felix Tshisekedi is ruling the Democratic Republic of Congo, but indeed he has never spent a full month in this country. 
The head of state is always in and out for meetings with other leaders to try and connect the DRC to the world in order to create or consolidate relations, especially in terms of economy, security and more. Some of the Congolese who support what they describe as Mr. President's diplomatic strategy believe Felix Chisekedi's busy fixing relations that have been destroyed for 18 years. According to this secondary school teacher, Pauline Mokuna, it's indeed the DRC people who will benefit from Tisekedi's trips outcomes. Normally, Tisekedi is going in all of the countries. It means uh, the place that the former president destroyed is going to arrange for being connected to those countries. Because in Congo, you want to work with everybody. The time that things are going to change, people are going to say, really, this is a good president. He is going for signing some problems to wait in other countries. Because in our country, we got many problems. And abroad, they were not receiving us. That's why he said he wants to invest with countries. Abroad, he has to go there, signing, talking to them, getting along well themselves. And after that, they're going to come in our country for investing. And everything will be very well. One year in our country, let me tell you, we are going to rejoice about what he was traveling. He is traveling because we destroyed many countries. Chorton said, we are in Congo. We destroyed America, Belgium, and many countries. But if today we got problems, which country going to support us? He has to arrange first with them. After arranging with them, those countries, they can come in our country for investing for the good for the Congolese people. We are going to rejoice what we have in our country. Felix Echisekedi came on power in January and took his first flight to Angola in February, where he came back again in July, same February in Kenya, where he went again in March. He visited the Congo Brazzaville in February and September. Still February, he went to Ethiopia and Namibia. In March, Chisekedi traveled to Uganda and went back there this November. Still in March, he was in Rwanda before taking his flight to Senegal in April. Same April, he flied to the USA and went back there in September. In May, he went to South Africa before visiting Gabon, Tanzania, Burundi and Zambia in June. Chisekedi traveled to Niger in July, Japan in August and Belgium in September. Mr. President's flight in October was to Italy, Serbia and Russia. This November he has been in France and Germany. Some other Congolese believe this is a waste of this country's money and call on President Chisekedi to stop begging. Charles Mushizi is a lawyer here in Kinshasa. Our president is going everywhere in the world. I think he's just wasting the resources and we don't have enough resources in DRC so he would be better to invite his colleagues presidents in DRC so that they can see concretely the projects in what they can directly invest to improve the situation in the Congo. In my opinion, going through the world without any program of governance is just like uh, begging. So uh, I don't think we are moving forward. The thing that should be before those trips is to draft a program of governance of the country and then to look for means in terms of how to implement the program. But we don't have any program so far. So 
to go uh, here and there begging doesn't give to our country an image we would like it to get. On his trip in Paris this month, President Felix Echisekedi told the Congolese diaspora he has never spent 50 million US dollars on his trips, but has brought more than 1.0 billion US dollars in this country. Jean Noel Pamoise for Channel Africa in Kinshasa. The situation remains calm in South Sudan. However, verbal attacks continue between President Salva Kiir and his main rival, Rek Machar, as well as non-signatories to the peace agreement they signed more than a year ago. Anita Pangyang is one of the renowned experts in South Sudan. Pangyang summed up the situation in Africa's newest nation when she spoke to James Shimangula in Nairobi. Since they signed the agreement in September 2018, there has been decline in fighting, which has meant a decline in abuses. But there's still ongoing fighting between stakeholders to the peace process and non-signatories, especially in central Equatoria and surrounding areas. Armed forces are still committing atrocities against civilians, including unlawful killings, sexual violence, abductions, including forced recruitment as well. It's hard to predict whether a government will be stable. There are certain benchmarks, which includes respect of human rights, including ensuring that there's space for citizens to be able to speak up about all the violations that are happening and also what they aspire to for their own country. Looking at the country, why do you think building trust between Machar and uh, Salva Kiir has become a big hurdle towards implementation of the peace agreement and as the People of South Sudan wait eagerly for the formation of a new government in uh, February next year. You have to look at that relationship in the context of what has gone on in the country before independence. You have to look at it in the context of root causes of this crisis, which includes impunity and a lack of accountability, but as well as the inability to resolve political differences through dialogue. In other words, you think the mistrust between the two will continue even after forming the government or before forming the government. I cannot 100% predict that. The leaders have to build trust and confidence among themselves, but they also have to build trust and confidence towards the South Sudanese people whom they have disappointed year in, year out, who have suffered immensely during these six years of conflict. There are humanitarian and human rights needs that will precede this agreement and that will even go beyond the formation of the government. So the priority of the leaders of South Sudan should be service delivery and being accountable to their people. But that requires trust building both amongst themselves, not only just Kiran Machar, but all leaders, but also trust building towards South Sudanese citizens. It's a social contract and there's accountability needed for that. That was Anita Pengyang, a renowned expert in South Sudan, speaking to James Shimangula in Nairobi. Follow Channel Africa on these social media platforms on Facebook, Channel Africa One, on Twitter, at Channel Africa One and YouTube on Channel Africa Radio. Our website, www.channelafrica.co.za. Channel Africa, from an African perspective. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa.
very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musan. The headlines, Mali's army says 24 soldiers have been killed in an attack by militants in the east of the country. The leader of a group of foreign nationals are being, who are being accommodated inside the Central Methodist Church in Cape Town in South Africa. J.P. Palus says they are ready to leave the church and the country. And Hong Kong's chief executive, Carrie Lam, has urged protesters occupying a major university to cooperate and resolve the situation peacefully. Those are the stories making headlines. Sambavenda senior traditional leaders in South Africa's Limpopo province have announced their withdrawal from both the National and Provincial House of Traditional Leaders to express their unhappiness about Bavenga the Bavenda Kingship Report. Both houses have released a report declaring that Tony Mpepu Ramabulani is ineligible for kingship. Michael Makungu reports. Some senior traditional leaders under Bavenda Kingdom held a meeting to discuss the developments in the kingship dispute at Zanan Injerere. Chief Mbangisini Masia says they were excluded when the report on the ruler of Bavenda Kingdom was compiled. The report submitted to the Limpopo High Court declares Tony Mpepurama Burana ineligible as head of the Bavenda Kingdom. The report also declares Princess Masindi Mpepo as the rightful heir to the throne. Chief Mbangisini Masia says they are distancing themselves from the report. We are ever disturbed by the work assigned to the houses, both provincial and national. But this work was poorly done because there's no proof of any investigation that took place. We distance ourselves from such reports. We are not part of such reports. All our senior traditional leaders of vendor descent are withdrawing from the house because they cannot continue to be part of an institution that does not protect their customs and traditions. However, Masia says their views on the report would be aired in court. And this is what we always emphasize, that process is always a problem. Even with disputes that you find in royal, royal families here, if you investigate very well, you'll find that the problem is process. So once the process is flawed, we can't even talk about the answer. Of course, we've got our views about the conclusion, which we don't want to entertain. That conclusion is going to be entertained in the court of law we've got. Mpepura Mabulana Royal House spokesperson Ntsienuria Mabulana says they'll make their own submission to challenge the report. We as the family they have got nothing to say. All we can say is we've heard what they say and we respect their decision because they took their decision independently. We obviously can't go into the merits of that report, uh, but we are definitely going to go and make submissions you know, regarding that report. Princess Masindi Mpepo has challenged her uncle, Tony Mpepo Ramaburana, for the crown for years. In 2016, she interdicted the coronation ceremony. Mpepo Ramaburana was stripped of his crown by the Supreme Court of Appeal in a judgment which ordered the withdrawal of his recognition certificate. I am Michael Makungo in Polukwane.
Sub-Saharan Africa accounts for two-thirds of all maternal deaths and the rate of stillbirths annually. This is often seen as an indicator of the quality of care around the time of birth and is said to be more than eight times that of high-income regions. One global organization at the forefront in improving sexual and reproductive health is Partnership for Maternal, Newborn and Child Health, its recently appointed board chair Helen Clark, who was a participant at the recently held International Conference on Population and Development, Jane Rabutata caught up with the former New Zealand Prime Minister in Nairobi, who began by explaining her passion for advancing the health of women, girls and children. I grew up in an era when there wasn't much information available to us and our mothers didn't talk to us either. So you had to gather information from wherever you could to keep yourself safe and protect yourself. Which, if you have had access to good education, yes, you will cope. But I see in my own society and many places around the world people enormously less fortunate than I am in that respect and where if governments don't step up to provide proper services and comprehensive sexuality education then girls and young women don't have the choices and information in front of them which they should have. So my passion derives from that. I was 30 years ago appointed Minister of Health in New Zealand and one of the things I achieved as a minister was to put legislation through the New Zealand Parliament which made it very plain that it was legal to prescribe contraception to under-18s without their parents being aware. And we did that because we know that teens often will not go to a doctor for contraceptive pill or an IUD if they think the doctor's going to tell their parents. So I have a history of action on this uh, going back to my time as a health minister 30 years ago. You are now the board chair of the Partnership for Maternal, Newborn and Child Health, a position you assumed not so long ago. Now in welcoming you to this new role, your predecessor described you as a gifted strategist with a global reputation for advocating for sustainable development and inclusive amongst other things. So what's your strategy for the PMNCH? I mean, in your two-year term, how do you want to position the organization to further advance the health of mothers, young girls, and children globally? So the partnership is very broad. It's 1,100 organizations, among them governments with a range of views, but very rich constituency and the adolescent and youth voice and the women's uh, NGO and civil society voice is very strong. For me, I think we need to focus on what will be necessary to get to the the three zeros. Uh, We need to focus on advocacy aimed at getting political leadership to accept its responsibility, sufficient funding to finish the job of reaching uh, these goals, and also focus on quality. Can you briefly explain the three zeros you just mentioned? We want to get to uh, zero preventable maternal deaths, newborn deaths and child deaths. That's not saying no deaths ever because some you you cannot prevent but what you can prevent you should be able to prevent and if we are going to get to zero preventable mortality for example in pregnancy and childbirth there's a number of things that must be done and one of them will be to get down the teen pregnancy rate because the young adolescent mother is is the most vulnerable young mother and the mortality rate is, is highest there. So we focus on advocacy, on supporting all our partners in this big constituency to get the information they need and to 
that to have a single message that we go out with and what's important. For me, the top thematic priorities will be the sexual and reproductive health and rights available to all. And secondly, a big focus on adolescents and youth. There is a view which I share that adolescents have been a missing population when we think about and, and prioritise health. And yet adolescence is... Firstly, an age where young people are going to begin to explore their sexuality. They need information, they need services which are appropriate for them. And secondly, it's the age at which um, a clinical condition in mental health may become apparent. Schizophrenia being an example. In my own country, there's a significant rate of youth suicide. And again, this requires adolescent and youth-specific services. We have joined at the partnership a call for action on adolescent health and well-being, and the hope is that there will be an international summit in 2022 which will focus on adolescence issues. So these are the kinds of priorities that I bring to the partnership. Speaking of mental health in adolescents, it's a growing concern. Just recently, there was a big conference in Italy which sought to push mental health among children and young people higher on the global health agenda and we are seeing how different issues often compete for attention but I'm wondering now is there perhaps a link between adolescent mental health and sexual and reproductive health issues and if so is there enough attention to this link? Probably not enough attention in linking the two and that's why I think if we focus on the adolescent and listen to what the adolescents and youth are saying, what are their needs? And they will tell us, and they will tell us they don't have access to a range of services. And the services they need may not require, uh, in some cases, a huge investment of money. For example, I think in my country of a, uh, a youth line that has operated for decades, and it is staffed by trained youth volunteers and young people who are lonely, at risk of self-harm, even of suicide, they can ring that number and someone is going to talk to them in an empathetic way. It's a very low-cost intervention. If we think of other low-cost interventions, one of the most wonderful ideas coming out of African region is the Harari psychiatrist, one of very few in Zimbabwe, uh, very few resources who developed the friendship bench and he trained grandmothers to sit on the bench so that people could come and talk to them as an entry point. Why don't we use that thinking now around adolescence? Could there be a peer support, a friendship bench for youth? There will be many innovations that come which, which can help people you know, work out what their needs are and what the next steps could be. That's Helen Clark, board chair of the Partnership for Maternal, Newborn and Child Health, speaking to Jane Rabutata in Nairobi. E-hailing drivers have taken a stand in South African coastal city of Port Elizabeth by holding a peaceful demonstration against the recent robbing, hijacking and killing of drivers. The protest started at New Brighton Police Station and carried through Guazakele, which has seen most of these crimes. The drivers wanted the communities aware of the challenges they go through to help the communities, as Kim Daniels reports. Sandisile Kumza has been an Uber driver for four months and has already been attacked. About three weeks ago, he received a request for a pickup in Nee Street in Kwazakele when a gun was pointed at him. The two robbers, who claimed to want to live to some strand, left him on the side of the road after stripping him of all his belongings. 
They sped away in his car, which was eventually found, after he opened a case with the police. Kumza says that five other drivers were robbed on the same day. It is really bad. You can take it lightly, but be having a gun on your head, seeing the nozzle, anything can happen within split seconds. You can die instantly while leaving a family behind. We're not doing this for fun. In most cases, no one carries a lot of money with them. They just going to find maybe 100 rand or 200 rand. No one carries 1,000 rands. That's why they're not away off. And yeah, they will take your phones and stuff like that. The robbing and hijackings are not a new occurrence. They've been happening for years now, and these drivers say they've had enough. One of the organisers, Collins Osehi Akoto, says 25 people have been injured on duty in the past month, four were hospitalised and two others were killed. Uber drivers, our lives also matter. In fact, that is the main reason why we are here. We found out that most of our brothers and sisters have been hijacked, killed, probably. You know, we have we have a number of killings, a number of, of injuries due to drivers being attacked by, by, by these scrupulous robbers that we don't know exactly what they want from us. So our, our protest today is to simply convey a message. Drivers feel that their work environment is no longer conducive. This job was fine before. It's becoming stressful. It's becoming worrisome. It's becoming, uh, I mean, we're fearful when we accept a request because unfortunately we don't know where we are going to until we start um, accept the trip. It's so sad because we are rendering a service for our community as much as it's business for us. There are women who also work in this industry. They face the same challenges as their male counterparts. Yes, we are afraid. Yes, it's not safe. But we have to do what we have to do. That's the reason why we're here, just because it's, we, we, we're not going to get anything from anyone. We can't just go and beg. That report by Kim Daniels. Our economics update up next with Tabiso Luhuku. Thanks, Lulu, and good morning. South Africa's Public Enterprises Department has expressed its confidence in newly appointed ESCOM CEO Andre Dereta, who will take over on the 15th of January. Dereta is currently the CEO of NAMPAC, Africa's largest packaging company. The Public Enterprises Ministry says in a statement that the appointment follows an exhaustive recruitment procedure. It says Dorita has an LLB and an MBA and has served in various senior positions in the corporate world, including Cecil. Public Enterprises says Dorita will lead the reorganization of ESCOM, including the separation of the power monopoly into three entities, generation, distribution and transmission. Acting Public Enterprises DG, Khatatsu Tlakuti. He is an accomplished CEO with a deep and wide experience in creating and managing high-performing listed businesses. Minister Godan would like to thank Mr. Direta for availing himself to take over this very difficult position during this very trying period 
at ESCOM. Minister Godan is hopeful that the ESCOM board, the senior management team, as well as officials within government will work together in realizing the goals that has been set in the roadmap for ESCOM recently published. The National Union of Metal Workers of South Africa, NIMSA, has rejected the appointment of Dorator as the ESCOM CEO. NIMSA General Secretary, Evan Jim. We regard this as nothing less than a provocation. This constitutes a setback when it comes to transformation agenda in the country. This is an insult to blacks and Africans in this country. But to date in this country, since the democratic breakthrough, we do not have a competent black woman and a black African who can occupy such a position. The Namibian Competition Commission has refused to grant a state-owned National Petroleum Corporation of Namibia permission to import 50% of the country's fuel needs. The Director of Enforcement, Exemptions and Cartels at the Competition Commission, Nangosura Chiputua, said on Friday that it would just create barriers to market entry and offer no substantial public benefits. Namco had applied to the Commission to be exempted from the provisions of the Competition Act last year. Mozambican Prime Minister Carlos Agustino Dorasiro says tourism to Mozambique is gradually increasing and that in 2018, tourism earned the country $241.8 million compared with $196 million in 2015. Rosario says that as a result of the reforms being implemented by the government in the sector, the number of international tourist arrivals has been increasing significantly. According to the government, the figures... 2.8 million tourists entered the country in 2018, compared with 1.6 million in 2015. Zimbabwe's central bank has cut its main lending rate to 35% from 70% effective Wednesday after a meeting of the Monetary Policy Committee which said the inflation outlook was positive despite a recent spike in prices. The month-on-month inflation rate soared to 4 Month highs on of 38.75% in October from 17.7% the previous month, propelled by a surge in the prices of food and alcoholic beverages. The US dollar is trading at 359.76 Nigerian Nara, 10.74 Botswana Pula, 101.73 Kenyan shilling, and 13.87 Zambian kwacha. In BRICS currencies, one US dollar will cost you 419 Brazilian roll, 6378 Russian ruble, 7163 Indian rupee, 71 Chinese yuan, and 1475 to the South African rand, 77 pence British pound, 90 cents euro, golden thousand, 469 dollars, platinum, 895 dollars per ounce. The price of brand crude oil is at 62 dollars, 27 cents a barrel. From an African perspective, I'm Tabiso Lehoku. A sports update up next with Figile Lingwati.
We start with football news. Going to the two opening matches of the 2021 African Cup of Nations, Bafana Bafana's target was at least to come back with four points, but they could only manage to get three. They lost the first game 2-0 away in Ghana and beat Sudan 1-0 at Orlando Stadium, south of Johannesburg. With still four games to be played in these qualifiers, Bafana head coach Muli Finzeki believes that all is not lost, especially with Kev using the head-to-head system. We are still placed third because of the three points, because uh, Sudan has got four points, which is uh, a, a, a small line and a setback for us. But I think uh, I made mention of uh, having to place our home, uh, home and away before we play Sudan and before we play, we play Ghana. Um, yes, as a coach, uh, you give yourself confidence, you give the team confidence, you plan accordingly because our plan was to get uh, uh, a point. If ever uh, we can't win, we could uh, settle for a point. We could not even think of any other thing because if we were to lose this match or if we were to draw this match, we would have put ourselves under a lot of pressure going forward. World Football's controlling body, FIFA, has formed the World Football Club Association, WFCA, which hosts its maiden championship for the FIFA Club World Cup in China in 2021. Among the officials which were named over the weekend is Moisi Katumbi from the Democratic Republic of Congo, DR Congo. He is the president of the African football powerhouse, TP Mazembe, and now he has been named as the WFCA's vice president. FIFA president Gianni Infantino has been in the forefront of the formation of the WFCA. Eight clubs from around the world were founder members. The World Anti-Doping Agency, WADA, says its executive committee, EXCO, will meet on the 9th of December to consider further action against the Russian anti-doping agency, RUSADA. WADA said in a statement that its compliance review committee had met on Sunday and decided to bring a formal recommendation to the EXCO. The announcement is part of the formal procedure opened by WADA on the 17th of September because of its inconsistencies found in some of the data that was retrieved by WADA from the Moscow Laboratory in January this year. On Sunday, the CRC considered a report from the agency's Intelligence and Investigations Department and independent forensic experts. It said the report included consideration of responses from the Russian authorities to a list of detailed and technical questions raised by the experts. In tennis news, Swiss tennis star Roger Federer, ranked third in the world, says he sees no reason to stop when asked if he was considering retirement. A 38-year-old Federer noted that he has been asked about retiring for the past 10 years. I don't know the answer, to be honest. Uh, it's uh, As long as I'm feeling good right now and I'm really enjoying my life on the road and uh, I see no reason to stop. When I won uh, the French Open and I won the four different Grand Slams and I broke the all-time Grand Slam record then the following uh, month at Wimbledon when I, I won Wimbledon again, I won the 15th Slam. That's when people already started asking me if I was going to retire soon. And that was in 2009. So this is 10 years ago and so I've been, I don't know how it's going to end. I hope it's just going to be uh, somewhat emotional, I guess. and. Uh, and nice and um, I don't know uh, I just hope it's going to be good the whole process you know and not too not too difficult Fedra is closing out the year with a series of exhibition matches against Germany Alexander Zerev in Latin America the tour will take Fedra to Argentina Chile Colombia Ecuador and Mexico that's a sport news this hour
Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories on Africa rise and shine at the Sawa, the African Union explains why its ambassador to the U.S. was fired, and South Africa holds a symposium on the future of Zimbabwe. That wraps up Africa rise and shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumuzora Magaza, technical producer Mario Edwards, and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at infochannelafrica.org or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news is Matterfix with a song titled Living Dafoe.